I'd like to <coughs> welcome everyone this morning and just, uh, let, uh, let us have a, another minute or two for people to get settled and find your sitting places. like to begin these days with a short period of our traditional chanting, so um, I thought uh, a good way to begin uh, today, uh, uh, the theme being uh, on non-contention, uh, will be the, the, uh, the Buddha's teaching on, on loving-kindness, so this is the, we'll do the English version, so uh, if, you, uh, if you happen to know the words, please join in if you like. <laughs> If you don't, just uh, uh, use this as an opportunity to listen to these words and to take this as a moment to, to settle in and to uh, allow yourself to, uh, to arrive and to set the, uh, the intention towards the quality of uh, kindness uh, and, and non-contention. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness, over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, 
outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. Well, the uh, the theme for the day um, is I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, as being the... Uh, <laughs> always. Yeah. Uh, the I'm right, you're wrong. This is, uh, in a way, the, archi- the archetypal expression of our attachment, our tendency to attach to views and opinions. That if I think it, it must be true. And if you think different, well, sorry, but... You're wrong. <laughs> you might be a good person, but you're just wrong. So um, uh, I thought this is a very uh, timely and useful theme for, for many reasons. And uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, there's many dimensions for this, uh, for this subject. And uh, hopefully during the course of the day, we'll look at a number of these um, I thought to start off with the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving Kindness, particularly because it's very noticeable when you chant it in English how uh, the first part of the, of the, the teaching is all about uh, having kindness to all beings and this uh, uh, unconditional love for, uh, for the, the near and far, the small and the great, etc. Um, and then the last four lines have a different character. That it suddenly shifts into a different mode after you say this is said to be the sublime abiding, and then after that, okay, that defines the the sublime abiding or the sort of a pleasant place to be, and then the last part is uh, is of a different tone, isn't it? It's by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. That's uh, that's about not having an abiding. It's about letting go about uh, non-clinging, essentially. And uh, so uh, in, uh, in a number of the teachings, the Buddha talked about four different kinds of, of clinging, four different zones of attachment. So the, the first kind is uh, clinging to, to sense desire, sense pleasure. So that would be um, being freed from all sense desires, covers that one. Um, the pure-hearted one, uh, that covers the second kind of clinging, which is clinging to precepts and practices, rules, observances, uh, conventions, that sort of blind belief in uh, conventional structures. Yeah. Uh, this can be like rules of, sort of religious behavior. It can also be things like the value of money, you know, uh, social commitment, which, which side of the road do you drive on? You know, these are <laughs> thinking it's an absolute, uh, the mind clinging to those things makes it an absolute thing. Like if you think that your dollar has an absolute value, ha! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
and then the uh, next kind of clinging is clinging to the, the feeling of self, what's called atavarupadana, the I, me, and my feeling. But the, the one that uh, uh, we'll focus on today is this um, clinging to, to views. Uh, it's that very first one that's in the list, not holding to fixed views. Ditincha anupagamma in Pali. By not holding to fixed views. So that's the, the fourth kind of clinging, is clinging to views and opinions. So it is, it's very much a, a truism, isn't it? That uh, as culturally we tend to uh, hold opinions in a very, very high regard. And, and even though I, I say it sort of half-jokingly, if I think it, it must be true, isn't that close to home, right? That isn't that the same, uh, it's a very strong habit for all of us. If, that, if I see it in this particular way, if this is what I think is right, then I'm right. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the, the tendency to, to take an opinion or a view as an ultimate reality is a strong cultural habit. Is that too much for a presumption? To no. <laughs> I think I'm, I, I'm kind of preaching to the converted here. But uh, uh, So the, we, it's a habit that we all have. But then um, what, uh, what happens is that um, if we attach to that way of, of thinking, if we, we uh, take that to be... Uh, absolutely valid, then we find ourselves in conflict against uh, those who think differently. That uh, if you think different from the way that I do, then you must be wrong. And then so this can lead to friction, contention, uh, and uh, all kinds of, uh, of quarrels on a, a family level, social level, um, political level. And uh, you know, even to the point of leading to, to warfare uh, over these kind of ideals. Uh, or, or just differences of understanding. So this is a very significant and uh, an important issue in our life. And even though we maybe look at it more, uh, or gets our attention more on a, on a broad political level or social level, if we don't understand the, the very core of it, how that works in our own minds, then there's no real hope of solving it on a, on a broader scale. So that hopefully today we'll be able to explore that, that quality of where does this... Um, this quality of contention and um, uh, that that uh, divisiveness, that that polarity. Where does that come from, and what can we do about that? Because uh, one of the, the issues that comes up is that if I'm right and you're wrong, then it might I might feel it's my duty to set you straight. <laughs> I've got to you're you I'm pure, you're impure, and I've got to. And it's my my sacred duty to fix you so that we have. We have purity, uh, or like uh, the, um, uh, and I mean, on on a on a social level, this has happened, like with the the terrible uh, depredations of like Nazi Germany, or in, uh, in other groups, ethnic cleansing, quote unquote, in in the Balkans, or or even just recently in the news, this um this uh, militias and uh, uh, religiously inspired militias who feel it's their duty to defend the, the, uh, the word of the Lord by wiping out those who think differently, those who act differently. Um, about people doing things in the name of democracy. Indeed. So it's, it's not an even in the name of Buddhism, <laughs> in the name of the purity of your monastic tradition. So it's not just um, uh, in one zone of our life. This can be you know, happening everywhere. Uh, so I thought this was a very useful theme to explore because uh, 
these, uh, the results of this kind of uh, attachment and clinging, getting lost in, in our own viewpoint, creates very re real difficulties, real tensions, real pain, in the, and, and real uh, harmful uh, qualities, harmful experiences in the lives of, of many people. And the um, and even though because the more that we believe in our opinions and the more that we have a a, a, a um, investment in the rational mind and, the, and, and indeed the more uh, logical our thoughts can be or the more um, tidy our, our rationale can be then the more it can seem like perfectly valid to straighten somebody else out because they're they're wrong and that. Uh, you are, and, and even though we might not think of it as a sacred duty, uh, we can still have that uh, um, uh, strong quality of, of righteousness, you know, and, and, this, and even be praised throughout our childhood and our upbringing that righteous indignation is a really good quality. You know, get upset, straighten, <laughs> take action, straighten out. Uh, do what you can to straighten out the other. And it's not, and the, the, one of the big issues is that it's not that that's always the wrong thing to do. <laughs> Sometimes stepping up and, and taking action is exactly the appropriate thing to do. But it's the basis on which we do that. That's what makes a difference. That's what I would like to, to bring into the air today. Um, the whole, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality, to quote our previous president. <laughs> I say our. I'm I'm an American citizen now, so I can say it. <laughs> our our previous president. If you're not with us, you're against us. And on one level, we can make a, a, a tight logical case for that and say, yeah, that's 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 absolutely true by our own logic and reasoning. But then we don't recognize what that's doing to our own heart and what that's doing into the uh, the way that we relate with others. There was a um, a story I've often told that um, Ajahn Sumedho speaks about. He's the the um, uh, senior most Western um, student of, of Ajahn Chah, uh, he was uh, ordained as a monk back in the in the sixties, in sixty-seven, in Thailand. And uh, in his, the early days in, in uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery, even before Jack Cornfield came, which was like sixty-nine or seventy, Ajahn Sumedha was the um, uh, was the only Westerner living there. And he was a very ardent and and keen, uh, idealistic monk and uh, took the monastic training very seriously and was very, very committed, uh, as all good monastics should be. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, he also grew up in a very sort of righteous American <laughs> conditioning and uh, had a different way of going about things than some of the uh, other monks in the monastery. So uh, with uh, this particular time, there was a, a Thai monk, uh, another of uh, the monks that was living there, who was very loud-mouthed. I mean, they were terrible kinds of people. <laughs> it was always uh, uh, rattling on about things. It was very loud and um, uh, very outspoken, uncautious about his speech. And, and as I'm, uh, as I'm saying this, thing, uh, uh, or talking about these qualities, I fully, in full disclosure, I've had an entire lifetime of being known as loquacious, noisy, <laughs> logoreic, uh, too. Uh, too ready with, a, with a, uh, the flow of words. In fact, uh, just to tell a little story as an aside, when I was a, ki when I was a kid, my, we used to go and visit my grandparents in uh, my, my grandmother's family in Belgium. We'd had a three and a half hour boat ride across the English Channel. 
And so they would, my grandparents would rent a cabin on the, on the, on the ferry boat, and we'd all be in this cabin. And it, particularly if the sea was rough, it wasn't really good to be out on deck. We'd all be in there together. And my grandfather was this very, very, very quiet, sort of sweet old Jewish businessman, an incredibly sort of shy, quiet, modest type. And um, so there was me, this, uh, this uh, incessantly chatty five-year-old. And he offered me sixpence if I could stop talking for five minutes. <laughs> And in, in those days, sixpence was serious money. If I could just can it for five minutes. And I, I, uh, I have a memory of nearly exploding <laughs> with, uh, with the effort of restraint. But, uh, but, uh, he gave me the sixpence. So anyway. But it was tough. So anyway, uh, as I'm talking about this, uh, this, uh, this logoreic monk um, in Thailand, you know, who... He could never shut up, was very loud and outspoken and, uh, and very sort of brash, which is very extremely unusual uh, in, in Thailand. People tend to be much more sort of restrained and, and not sort of confrontational or, or outspoken uh, in the sort of way of uh, average social interaction. So uh, as it was, uh, Ajahn, the, the young Ajahn Sumato took great offense at this, this monk's behavior and thought this is totally out of order. And why isn't Ajahn Chah saying anything? He just let this, lets this guy just carry on and make a fool of himself and upset everybody, and everyone can see he's out of order, and no one's saying anything. This is ridiculous. You know, somebody ought to get up, and I, even though I'm a junior monk, you know, I really ought to... So, you know, if somebody doesn't say something, I will. And uh, this went on for some weeks or months, and uh, he got more and more indignant, the righteousness level ramping up. And, <laughs> and still Ajahn Chah wasn't seeming to say anything and just let this guy carry on regardless. And then eventually Ajahn Chah went off to visit some branch monastery for a few days and it, and it occurred that that was at the same time there was a fortnightly recitation of the monastic rule. And usually what happens after the 227 rules have been recited, then the, the teacher will give an instructional talk and then say, is there any business that the Sangha wants to bring up? And uh, with Ajahn Chah away, there was a, a shorter exhortation from the senior monks and then he said, anyone has, has anyone got any business to bring up? And even though Ajahn Sumedha was only been a monk for two or three years at that point, and this, the, the, uh, the loudmouth bhikkhu was uh, a bit senior to him, he said, yes, I, I've got uh, something I'd like to bring up. Um, yeah, I'm very concerned about the, the conduct of bhikkhu X. And, um, and then he had his whole list of you know, different you know, occasions. Like, okay, there was this occasion, this occasion, this occasion, this occasion. And... Uh, and he had, he had witnesses, he had you know, the evidence, he had all his criteria. Everything was lined up, you know, very neatly. And, um, and the thing was, he was right. You know, that he, he, all the things that he criticized the monk about, they were, they were factually valid. Um, and there were other people around, and it, and it was... Uh, and you could see that other people were upset, or, or lay people took offense and walked away and so on. And uh, during the time that he was saying this, then he, you know, the, the other offending monk was sort of looking at the floor and, and everyone else just sort of <laughs> listening, taking it all in. And finally, um, they, uh, he got to the end of his, his diet, sort of dharmic diatribe. And then um, they said, oh, well, we'll just wait till Lumpur Char gets back, till Arjun Char gets back, and then we'll bring it to his attention. <coughs> so, of course... Uh, then a few days later, Ajahn Chah returned, and the word reached him pretty quickly about this sort of outrageous <laughs> confrontation that the, the, the foreign monk had, had uh, 
uh, engaged in at the, at, the, uh, at the time of the recitation. And uh, so he, uh, he took note of that. But during this time, like before Ajahn Chah had, uh, had come back, the, the monk who'd been criticized and shamed in this way, he'd, he'd just been around for a day or two and then he just took off. He just left the monastery and, uh, and uh, wasn't seen again. So uh, after a few days and, uh, and the Ajahn Chah got settled back in and he uh, found a moment to, to chat with, with Ajahn Sumedho just uh, by themselves and said, you know, Tan Sumedho, you know, what you said to, to that, the monk, the, the loudmouth monk, he says, you know, but he said, you know, you really, you did, you, you, uh, you did something very harmful there. You, know, you intended well, but, uh, but what you did was very harmful because even though, and the expression he, he used in Thai was, uh, I'll get the tones wrong, but it's, uh, the, the words are right. It says, bak bak jai di. It means his mouth is evil, but his heart is good. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a bad verbal habits. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, of course, yeah, everyone knows that. But it says, this was the, uh, how many monasteries do you think the guy had to leave before he came here? Yeah. This was the one place he could actually stay and practice because we, we, you know, I made space for him. But now you've closed the door on him and, uh, he, uh, and you have to take responsibility that, for that because he can't stay here anymore because you shamed him publicly. And so you have to acknowledge that was really poorly done on your part. Uh, it says, you were right in fact but wrong in Dhamma. Now that to me is an incredibly... Uh, precise and helpful teaching, and and in a way, the the theme for the whole day is uh, hopefully will be identifying that the, those two and being able to tease them apart, because in our minds often those are those are, are are meshed in together. If if I'm right, then however I act on that rightness is 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 good, not good, <laughs> not uh, not necessarily so. Because there's a, there's a principle whereby it's not just a matter of what you pick up, but, but how we pick it up. It's not just what we pick up, it's not just the opinion that we have or the, the way we see things, but it's how we pick that up that makes the difference. That's the crucial element. And that's what I, the young Ajahn Sumedho had missed. And it was a very powerful lesson for him, and he just remembered it ever since. So that then uh, being able to see, yes, this is my point of view, or yes, I, I have evidence to back this up and yes, you know, I, I know I'm right, you know, there were other people there, we all saw it. <laughs> but yet, um, it can be that uh, how do we, uh, we, we miss the question of therefore, how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we work with that? I, I was here at, a, a, at a, 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 a meeting some years ago when uh, there was a, some differences of, of opinion in the, in the community and um, there was a, a circle of people gathered for, for some event, and there was twenty or so people uh, saw things one way, and the, uh, another person saw things very differently, and uh, and so then it was it was brought out to this person. Well, you got here we are. There's this twenty of your peers saying we see it like this, and you're saying uh, no, I see it like that. Uh, how does that uh, how does that sit for you? you know, does that seem reasonable? And the, the, the individual person said, but no, it's, I'm fine with it. I'm, I, you know, I know I'm right. 
<laughs> and there was absolutely no wobble there. There was no wobble. There was this uh, complete conviction that, that this person's peers, friends, old-time companions were able to, to say, look, we, we see the situation really differently. And, uh, and this other person said, no, it's a, it was, I'm absolutely in the right, 100% in the right. And it was, and it was uh, very helpful to be able to see, okay, that's how this person is holding it. Okay, duly noted. <laughs> now we, we can take it from there. But oftentimes, it's not, we don't have that reflective approach. We don't see how tightly we're holding something or get any kind of perspective on it. We, uh, we go along with that. So to be able to, to, to see that feeling of rightness and then along with that feeling of rightness, then to, to expand that and say, okay, well, that being the case, even if I'm absolutely sure, 100% certain, then what is the way to work with this? What's the way to handle this? What's the way forward with this? There's a, princi a principle um, um, called practicing, in dhamma, practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. Dhamma nu Dhamma Patipata, which is the, the final factor for stream entry, for, being a, for entering the stream. This precise principle is, is like a, one of the essential elements of it. So that if we want to be a stream enterer, if we want to have enlightenment absolutely guaranteed for us, then this is something we really, not to kind of emotionally blackmail or <laughs> to threaten people, but you know, if we really want to be free, if you really want to be free, this is a principle that it's very, it's absolutely essential to understand and to embody, to, to really see the difference between not just having a, a sense of, of rightness, but that uh, recognizing that the way we act on that needs to be in accord with Dhamma, in accord with, with, a, with fundamental reality. And so then the challenge is how do we find that? How do we bring about that, uh, that accordance with reality? The, um, one of the, the, the problems that comes with this area is because the attention gets caught by the issue, right? It's because something are, is offending our ideal or it goes against our spiritual principle or, the, or it's got some sort of uh, strong emotional loading. So we, we get so taken by the object, the thing that we're picking up, that we miss the emotion that we're handling it with. Uh, again, just to tell a little, little story, I was impressed by... This was an article in the, in the Chronicle a number of years ago, and there was, it was describing there was two sets of astronomers that were both trying to carry out these same kind of measurements to decide uh, the exact rate that the universe was expanding and that, uh, to figure out the, the, at that time, <laughs> at the time, the final theory <laughs> of, uh, of how the universe was, was expanding or not. And there was one group, I think, that were, were working in the, from the... Um, South America, another group that was off in, in uh, Hawaii. And they had these two big telescopes going, uh, uh, trying to, to, to make these measurements. And uh, who was going get, get to get the numbers first? Who was going to prove, have the final proof about the expansion of the universe? And one of the, the people head, heading up one of the projects was, uh, uh, made a very interesting comment about the, the competition between these two groups. Because on one level, it's this, it's this you know, high-tech uh, uh, astrophysics, um, very refined, very you know, precise intellectual uh, issues. And, the, and ostensibly, it's about finding out the truth about the nature of the universe. 
but on the emotional level, it was more like a, a scrap between eight-year-olds in the schoolyard. <laughs> and his comment was that some people say that gravity is the most powerful force in the universe. I think it's more likely professional jealousy. <laughs> uh, that was very astute. I thought, well, he, whether he gets the, gets the numbers first or not, this guy's going to be all right. <laughs> but uh, recognizing, yeah, what's happening here is it's, it's a schoolyard scrap, and it's going to be who's going to be the one who ends up on top. That's what we really care about. Uh, and so it's noticing that kind of dynamic that's going on within us. Uh, one of the, the, uh, the uh, approaches through meditation that uh, I'd like to, to start with today is uh, understanding how the mind gets caught into these contentious states and we end up in these scraps um, where the, the reptile brain takes over. You know, the uh, the um, uh, sense of, of conflict and contention, quarrel, is, has, uh, competition has, has taken over our, our field of experience how that happens and how we get ourselves into these situations where we're, our, our rightness, we're, we're, we're clinging to our rightness, but it's not making us any happier. <laughs> so the, um, there was a, an occasion where the, the Buddha was off uh, meditating in the forest, and uh, it's described how this uh, Brahmin uh, pundit, like a Brahmin scholar, came you know, wandering through the, the, the area where the Buddha was, was sitting meditating, and he was one of these sort of professional debaters. You know, in, in India, they have uh, one of the forms of public entertainment. Like, you know, if you have, rather than having a movie show, you'd have a debate, a sort of spiritual debate. You get a couple of, of, of uh, pundits along, or religious uh, professionals, philosophers, and you sort of put them in the ring together <laughs> and, and, uh, and enjoy the debate. Now, it still happens today. It's still a, 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 that kind of um, contest goes on. And so this, this was a professional pundit who thought, He'd heard the reputation of the Buddha and thought, okay, let's see what this guy's made of. And so he came, as it described, he comes striding up to the, to the Buddha sitting in the forest and says, okay, oh, it's, uh, I, I've uh, heard about your reputation, uh, uh, Gautama, so um, please tell me, what's, your, what's philosophy? What kind of teaching do you proclaim? What kind of philosophy do you assert? It's like, okay, let's see your stuff. Let's, let's, kind of, let's, uh, let's have a workout here. You know, it's like a kind of... An ancient Indian version of a of like of a street confrontation, you know, who's uh, or like on the uh, competing for spaces and parking spaces in the in the parking lot or uh, the the gate with the least traffic at the toll booth, you know. Okay. okay, who's really got their stuff together here? So he goes head to head with the Buddha and says, "Okay, please, uh, Venerable Gotama, tell me, what do you, what kind of teaching do you assert? What philosophy do you proclaim?" And the Buddha, being a very quick judge of human character, said, yeah, I proclaim such a teaching that, uh, that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it said this, and this Brahmin was called Dandapani, which means um, uh, stick in hand, so kind of his, uh, with his walk, the, guy, the guy with the walking stick. So then it says he's, uh, <coughs> he kind of clicked his tongue three times, his, his brow puckered into three furrows, and wagging his head from side to side with nothing, with nothing to say, he, he, you know, he took off and left the Buddha by himself. Like, nothing to say. Like, the Buddha said, yeah, okay, <laughs> you want an argument? Fine. Have a nice day. <laughs> 
So he wouldn't pick it up. And then when he went back to the monastery and he described this encounter uh, uh, a little bit, you know, and he, um, uh, he said, he said uh, that when uh, and he was describing what had happened, he said, you know, when, there's, when the mind doesn't grab hold of things, when you, when you don't find anything, any opinion, any fixed position to delight in, then that's what brings about the end of, of quarrels, of disputes, of uh, malicious speech, of the taking up of weapons and uh, uh, of, of argument. Is that, that's where it comes to an end. It's where the mind uh, doesn't take that, sort of relishes that kind of fixity of taking hold of, this is my position. Um, and so then when, uh, and then he went off uh, um, and uh, the monks were a bit um, perplexed. This was a very brief statement that he made and he thought, okay, well, Maybe one of the others can explain this a bit better. So they went to Mahakachana, who was the one who was the expert at explaining in detail these, whenever the, the Buddha had given brief or cryptic statements. Then Mahakachana was called on to say, what did he mean when he said that? And then he gave this wonderful description about uh, how the, this quali- the uh, qualities of, um, of contention arise. And the... Um, the uh, this is from the, um, it's called the Madhu Pindika Sutta, which means the, the sweet morsel. And uh, the, he says, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is sense contact. With sense contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. That's like you, you give it a name, like sanya. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. So the the chattering mind takes that thought and then launches off with it. With such conceptual proliferation, or papancha, as the source, the heart is beset by mental perceptions and notions characterized by the prolific tendency with respect to the past, the future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. And then... If nothing is found there to delight in, to welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to to lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for being and ignorance. This is the end of resorting to weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech. Here these harmful, unwholesome states cease without remainder. So that, that little process that he describes there, where there's a sense contact, we see something, or we hear something. So there's a sound and then that, that impacts the senses. And then so there's a contact. And then there's a feeling of, of attraction or aversion or, or a neutral feeling. That um, the, um, the, and then the feeling of interest or you know, attraction or aversion. And that leads to perception. So we might say, uh, we give it the sound a, a name, or like someone we hear our name, or we we have a a uh, uh, something that causes a trigger in the mind of of, um, of interest or enthusiasm, or has a, an emotional impact, like say Obama. Or a few years ago, I, I on this day longs on the same theme. I would just use just use the word one letter W, <laughs> W. That's all you'd need. Okay, W. Two syllables. Okay, that still works. I can tell. Yeah. We remember. We remember. 
so we hear a sound, and then there's the sanya is the recognition. So it's like not just the, the sense perception, but the 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 uh, the tone that goes with it. So uh, there's a, like so the words sign designation they're related to the Pali word sanya. So it's that naming quality. And then that brings up thought, vitaka. That's like we we think about it. Oh him, oh thank goodness. Well, maybe Obama's not quite up to the up to the mark that we hope. But boy, I'm really glad that that's thinking. <laughs> uh, and then papancha is then the whole uh, story that then launches from that first thought. Like, uh, so that the first thought will be a simple phrase like, oh thank goodness, he's not with us anymore, or like, oh for the day that. <laughs> And then papancha is what launches from that, the, con- the string of conceptual proliferation. And then that is what leads into its sort of final uh, flowering, if you like, <laughs> uh, or uh, it's sort of when the, 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 the uh, chattering mind la- really launches off. That's what eventually leads us to the feeling of me oppressed by the world, me pressured by this thing that I'm stuck with that I don't want, or me pursuing this thing that I haven't got, or me being um, burdened by this painful uh, experience or, or me uh, uh, caught up in this p- particular quality. And that's um, that the, uh, the kind of whole array of, as he says, perceptions and notions that, uh, that beset the heart and create this feeling of, of alienation, me in, in a state of, of uh, tension with the, with the world. And that's like if that whole process is just left to, to run uh, and sort of do its thing. So this is a, a, a process I like to explore during the day because, as he said, that's what leads to this whole state of, of conflict and contention because we take a, a thought or we take a, a perception and then the mind runs with it, right? And then, uh, then we, uh, we find ourselves, ha- the mind having run with that, then we find ourselves in the state of, I've got to have this or I can't stand that or, or like, I, I've got to set so-and-so straight or, you know, the family issues, relationship issues, parent-child issues, that, ah, my kid, ah, my mother, ah, yeah, my partner, ah, my monastery, yeah. (laughs) You know, this is kind of non-denominational, you know. So, um, that, and that feeling of, 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 uh, of both alienation and pressure, somehow they managed to go together (laughs) in the, in the heart. And uh, what I'd like to do with the, in the first meditation period that we'll begin in a, in a moment is to look right at that, how that process works and then to see how we can, uh, we can follow it back because if you, uh, the further uh, down that, that track you get, the more painful it gets. But if you, if you follow it back, like if you, uh, if with meditation, if you notice that your, your mind is stuck um, in a... Uh, Having an argument with your with your child who doesn't happen to be here, <laughs> or your your difficult sibling, you know, in your imagination, then if you if you follow it back, okay, well, how did, my my kid's not here now. How did I how did I get into this thought? And think, okay, well, it was uh, uh, I I began the, the, this this line of thinking with the idea of what did I give him? What did I set up to give him for lunch today? And then that made me that was. That came from me thinking, oh, um, well, I didn't have much breakfast. Um, I'm feeling hungry. What am I going to have for lunch? And then it came from the feeling of a rumble in the stomach. 
and that's all it was. Oh. And when you go to the, when you follow it back, you think, oh, it was just a rumble in my stomach. Now, is that particularly painful or difficult? No. Very simple and straightforward. The sight, the sound, the feeling, the smell, the taste. It's, there's, a, there's an innocence, a simplicity to the, to the raw sense perception. When then the, the feeling of, oh, unpleasant, then, then the sanya, that's the rumbling in the stomach, then the vitaka, hmm, I'm hungry. Then the papancha, I'm hungry. Yeah, I didn't really have breakfast. What am I going to have for lunch? I, oh, what did I set up to have to give lunch to my kid? Gee, oh dear. Well, well he likes that. He doesn't like that. Well, is he going to have that? And, the, and, and off it goes. But it began with something incredibly simple and straightforward. Right? Just a, a, a simple feeling, a, a sound, a, a sight. And the, so that with this kind of meditation, we can uh, train ourselves to follow it back to the source of, a, of an individual perception or an individual idea, just a memory floating up, and then staying with the simplicity of that. In the, in the Korean, there's a, a very nice, uh, beautiful collection of teachings uh, in, from the Korean tradition where they, they talk about this practice. And it, there, the, uh, it's known as tracing back the radiance like the t- following the energy of the mind back to its its source, which I think is a, a very useful little phrase. Um, actually, Joseph Goldstein then sent me the, that, that book. I forget who the Korean uh, teacher is that it's the teachings from, but it describes exactly this process. And so that uh, we'll uh, we'll look at that uh, this morning and uh, see how um, uh, many ni- nine times out of ten, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the, the the conflicts that the mind gets into and the tensions it creates, if we follow them back to what triggered them then we, we find that we've, we've left that uh, experience of, of tension and, and alienation, that, that conflicted state, we've, that, that's been left behind, that's been let go of. So I'll finish my uh, opening reflections for the day here. And so if people would like to uh, stretch your legs for a minute or two, um, and use the bathroom if you need to, and then come back and we'll have the first uh, sitting period for the day.